Well, hello and welcome to the Story Hive podcast. This has been part of a long-running series and here we are in episode 24. Uh, don't worry if you haven't caught up with the others because these are all brand new and we're dying for you to come across and have a listen to them. So, the Story Hive is an audio story website which you can go and listen to lots of uh, stories for absolute free. We have a new shop with ebooks available. But we wanted to do the podcast because we think sometimes in a busy life, on a busy day, or even a lazy Sunday, isn't it nice just to sit down, kick back, put your headphones on, and lose yourself in an amazing story? Just for anyone unfamiliar with the Story Hive, it's a website featuring hundreds and hundreds of audio stories. We have ebooks available in our gift shop, so please pop across to www.thestoryhive.co.uk. Now, in the Story Hive, you're going to find different story collections, and this podcast series concerns one collection, and it's called True Stories. And when I say true stories, these are true stories that are either told to me, Phil Ryan, the author, or were lived by me, Phil Ryan, the author. But what's unusual about all these stories, fantastical as they are, they're all absolutely true. So without further ado, we're going to start with our first story, and it's called The Song. As we go through life, we experience so many things, and I've experienced all the stories you're hearing right now. And some I lived and others I was told, but... All of us share so many of the same experiences, really, don't we? Love, heartbreak, death, loss, joy, sickness, health. The list is endless. But once, many years ago, I had a friend whose mother became very ill. And it happened over a period of three years, and it was utterly tragic. His mother, my friend, well, she developed Alzheimer's disease. And to me, it's one of the cruelest diseases. It's just heartbreakingly sad in its effects because it just strips away our memories and us. And people then forget their children and their husbands and their family. It's, it's just heartbreaking. Well, of course, I'd read about it. And as you know, I've always had an interest in medical things because of my training instructor days. And I delivered, amongst other courses, medical information. So I'd heard quite a lot about this subject. Well, my friend, he talked to me sometimes, sadly, about his mother's slow and steady decline. And, well, this once lovely, confident, funny and smart lady, well, she was often found wandering in the street and had to call the police to find her. And then she started hiding a handbag from imaginary burglars and forgetting to close open doors and then she'd leave things burning on the stove. It's, it's very, very typical of that awful disease. And of course, him and his sister did their best. They you know, tried their best, but eventually it was deemed necessary and really heartbreaking for them. They had to put her into a care facility just for her own safety. But they visited her all the time and that was even worse because now she didn't even recognise them, her own children. And I think for him, that was probably the hardest part, watching his adored mother vanishing before his very eyes. Now, for me, the first time I actually witnessed her condition for myself, well, it did just shock me. You see, one day he phoned me up and said he was just in the area and needed to pop round and borrow something. But then he added, was it okay 
because he has his mother with him. And I said, of course, that's, that's absolutely fine. You can come and have tea. You've got to remember, this was a really lovely lady. I'd met hundreds of times over the years. I'd gone to a house, you know, lots of times. And she'd had parties I'd gone to and she'd made me dinner. We'd had tea, cakes, all the things that you would do in a kind of social way. So in a way, I kind of understand why he said it, but I knew his mother very well. The door buzzed and I let them in. And once they were both in the lounge, his mother suddenly turned to me and smiled. And my friend looked and said, Oh, Mum, this is my friend Phil. And the lady who I'd known so long looked at me and she was a bit shy and then she said, Oh, he said, This is my friend Phil, Mum, again. And she went, Oh, hello, Phil. I'm Grace. And I realised she didn't recognise me at all. I was a complete stranger. Her expression was a bit confused and hesitant. But anyway, I shook her hand and said, does everybody want tea? And I went in the kitchen and made some tea and came back in. And as soon as I did that, his mother came over to me and said, oh, hello, I'm Grace. And I shook her hand again and said, oh, hi, Grace, I'm Phil. Over the next hour, I think she repeated it about five more times and to be honest, it was breaking my heart. And she gave this little shy smile every time. But her eyes were just completely empty of recognition. It was a kind of a loop. And of course, my friend, well, I just felt so sorry for him and his sister. Because, as I said before, she didn't even recognise them. One of the things that he mentioned was she'd forgotten his father. And of course, the whole family had adored him. He'd been a lovely guy, late husband, Alan. And she'd lived with the guy for 60 years. And he said that sometimes she'd be in the house and pick up his photo and said, who was this? But anyway, somehow, she seemed to kind of be relaxed about them and let them care for her and visit. And she'd call their number often, asking who they were. All in all, it was just a terrible and sad situation. But one thing he told me and I found rather beautiful and wonderful, was his mother still played the piano. Now, their house had a rather beautiful Steinway baby grand, and I remembered him telling me that in her youth, she'd performed at concerts and things, and still to that day, she could play long pieces from memory, no perfect, for hours. But she couldn't recognise him or his sister, or where she put her shoes or her keys, and she was anxious and upset. But when she played the piano, it all seemed to vanish. Her body just wasn't tense. And hours would pass as she'd play and she was just so happy. Occasionally, even remembering him and his sister's names. As if the music was some kind of key, kind of way back into her old self. And, well, me being a musician, I always knew the power of music. It gripped me from a very young age. And in fact, I can tell you now, I couldn't live if I didn't play, not properly, most days. Well, as you can imagine, that memory stayed with me for years. Until one day, I met a lady in an event, and it turned out she was a community nurse, and her job was visiting elderly people in their homes. And we got chatting, and somehow the subject came up, and I told her my friend's story about, you know, his mother Grace and stuff. And that was when she told me this. She worked in South London, she said. And one day, years back, she found she had a new 
elderly patient added to her list, uh, Mrs Sangeeta Patel. And so she drove on her rounds until she finally went to house. And there was Mrs Patel with her husband Ravi, who was actually written down as her primary carer. And they were both in their late 70s. Now they lived in a small terraced house in a side street off a busy high road. And it was Ravi, the husband, who opened the door and invited her in. And as she looked around, she said the place was immaculate, spick and span. And she quickly established, because that was her job, that Sangeeta had been experiencing slight memory and mobility problems, and she'd even fallen a few times. But both conditions seemed to be getting steadily worse. In fact, the local GP had put her onto a medication regime, but all signs, they said, were pointing to Alzheimer's. And so now the doctor had asked regular checkups to be happening, blood pressure and stuff like that. And that was why Sangeeta was on her rounds. And all the while she was there, she said, Ravi, the husband, was always hovering, anxiously moving beside around his wife, and he'd brush her cheek and straighten her jumper, and he kept asking her anything she needed. And she said she never saw a more gentle soul. His face was full of concern, and his wife kept saying, See how wonderful my Ravi is. See how lucky I am. He looks after me so well. And she always gave a sunny little smile. And of course, the nurse said to me, that was just so touching. Because it was clear, even after all the years that had passed between them, they were still madly in love with each other. And he'd sit beside her, holding her hand throughout the tests. And as the nurse checked her out, made the assessment, she would always see that Sangeeta was now clearly, as the GP said, slowly getting worse. Well, around a year had passed and the condition had become very difficult because not only was her memory just almost gone, she was confused and way upset way more easily and then her mobility, sadly, started to suffer more. And eventually, even though it was the hardest decision, it was decided that she should go into care. But this was just so bad for poor husband Ravi. And he'd actually resisted, saying it was his job. He could take care of her. Why? He could you know, keep her at home. Because, as she said, the house was immaculate, clean and perfect. And he was happy to do everything. Clean, cook, dress her, the works. He'd been doing it for years. But in truth, the nurse said to me, it was having a pretty bad effect on him. Because he just looked exhausted every time she came round. And those kind of patients, she said, they needed highly specialist care but thankfully a place was found in a local specialist home and now completely coincidentally it was the nurse's daughter who worked at this particular care home as a senior assistant and it was her who told her mother the next part of the story now it seemed despite her condition that sangeeta continued somehow to keep telling everyone how wonderful her husband was, calling him her Ravi and saying he was the best husband in the world, even though she couldn't often remember him. But he came every day, without fail, and he always brought things, a flower, a sweet, a pitcher, a little lunchbox and a thermos, with treats for, he said, tastes and things that she loved. But by now her memory was just more and more fractured. But... The thing his wife responded to the most, she said, was the songs that Ravi had put onto a music player. 
and he'd explained to the nurse that the nice man his neighbour from next door had helped him buy it and showed him how to all put it together. Now, the patients weren't allowed music systems in their rooms, obviously, disturbing everybody, but it didn't matter, because Sangeeta could sit there with a little player with her headphones on, sitting, holding her husband's hand, and suddenly her face would light up, and she starts singing along quietly, and she knew all the words, and she remembered them all absolutely without fail. And there Ravi would sit, smiling, holding her hand, seeing his wife happy again. And he was always smartly dressed in a shirt and tie and nice polished shoes. And of course, he always came early. And there he'd stay, sat with Sangeeta for hours. Now, I need to digress a little here. So just, just, just bear with me. It's very relevant to this story. You see, because as the nurse finished her story to me, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, all the day long, a memory from being eight years old kind of rang around the back of my head. So here's that memory of me. You see, when I was a kid, I loved to read. And my early childhood was a bit troubled, and it wasn't that much fun sometimes. But I loved to escape into stories. It was a way of escaping, I suppose, my situation, I later realised. And that's probably why and how I probably became a writer and a storyteller like I am now. But one particular book of stories I loved was called World Mythologies. It was full of stories, as the title implies, from all the ancient mythologies from all around the globe. And inside it, there was a story I never forgot. I think it was a, a Greek story. Anyway, once upon a time, there was a great god who decided to visit the earth to see how humans behaved. And he decided to disguise himself as a beggar, a poor man. And so he arrived on the outskirts of a small village. But when they saw him, the villagers, well, they were very upset with his torn clothes and his dirty face. And they got really angry and said he'd come to steal from them and he was just a good-for-nothing vagabond. And now they threw stones at him and they hit him with sticks and even set their dogs to bite him. And they chased him away from the village. Well, now all battered and bleeding, the great god limped away until he found himself passing a very small house and he wasn't very well cared for and it looked a bit tumbled down. But outside there were two elderly people tending some crops in a small garden and he begged them for water and they immediately took him inside their small house. And though it was very basic and rough inside, they sat him down and the old man rushed to get water and the wife cleaned and bound his wounds. And then they said he should sit down and they should all eat together. Now, Shashara, for that was the woman's name, told her husband Simeon to bring their guest his warm coat, for the great gods was now all torn and dirty and threadbare, and Samian happily did so. And there he sat, the great god, and he noticed now they put most of their meagre food into his bowl, and most of their wine into his cup, and they left very, very little for themselves. And then they said he should stay the night, because the weather outside was way too cold, now they made him a soft bed of clean straw and they put their best blanket on top and the last of their wood on the small fire. The next morning, when the old couple awoke and they went to check on their guest, to their astonishment, instead of a poor beggar, there he stood, a great god, 
And they were terrified and they sank to their knees and they cried out for mercy and they apologised for their terrible house and how little food they'd had to give him and for the bed of straw. But the great God held his hand up and told them he was very pleased. And he said, they'd been so very kind. They bound his wounds and they'd given him water and they'd make sure he had all the food and drink he wanted. And suddenly he waved his hand and their little house was transformed into a lovely place, strong walls, stout ceiling, and everything was made good and bright. And as they looked, their larder became full, and their wine flasks too. And outside in the garden, their crops multiplied and gave them a large harvest, which would easily see them through the winter. And now in the meadow behind the house, a thousand flowers bloomed, and it filled the grass with a riot of colour. Well, at this, the old couple praised the great God, and they said he was merciful and kind. But now he gently lifted them from their knees, and he kissed them, and he embraced them, as if they were his own parents. And he said he would grant them whatever gift they asked for. Well, now, the old couple whispered together, and then they told him. At this, the great God smiled and said, It shall be so. And then... In a great golden cloud, he vanished. Well, many years passed, and the people in the village had all done very badly because of their unkindness. But outside, the old couple had prospered, and their small house was still small and bright and strong, and the crops so abundant, and the meadow always full of flowers. But they were very old now. And one day, as they stood in their little meadow, the old man felt his feet hold fast to the floor and he cried out and his wife reached out and took his hand and suddenly they were both transformed in an instant and she became a gently flowing river and he became a stout strong willow tree his branches brushing the surface of the water you see they'd asked the great god their love should never fade and they'd added that when it was time to leave this life, they wanted to leave at exactly the same time, so they should never be parted. And they said that was the greatest gift they could ever wish for. And now as the flowing river ran, the willow branches gently caressed the water for all eternity. And if you listen closely to the whispering in the leaves, they lovingly spoke her name. Shashara, my love, they whispered, forever and ever, until the stars fell from the heavens. I was only eight years old, but I think I understood it, and I knew my parents didn't feel that way about each other, but I wish they did, and I used to think if they did, they'd like me more, but that was life. But in a way, the story gave me a glimpse of what true love really was. Unlike so much of that reading I did at that tender age, actually it gave me great comfort and really later informed my world view. But I think even though I was young, I kind of figured out the truth of things. Because as I say, words are so very powerful. However, let's get back to the other story. Back in the care home, poor Sangeeta had got a lot worse. Because Alzheimer's is a very unpleasant and unpredictable disease. It just attacks random operating systems. And of course, it's so 
random, that memory fade, inability to perform tasks, impulsive behaviour, breathing impairment. And of course, the worst one is eventually the body sometimes completely shuts down and they become bedbound and then they pass on. And all this time, Ravi had visited every day, the nurse said, never missing. But she could see his wife was just far worse. Most days she didn't even recognise him. But somehow she always tolerated his presence, even though she was virtually bedbound and she'd shrunk physically too, her muscles virtually wasted away. But then the medical people noticed that her breathing was becoming very strained and laboured. And throughout everything, her husband would just sit there and the doctor apparently had even told him that the end might not be too far away. But still he came, saying he'd never leave her. Until, one particular evening, two other patients had severe medical emergencies and that tied the whole team up. And of course they were, like a lot of places, short-staffed. But then, the end of my story came. Because, the next morning, when a team member checked in on Sangeeta, they found her and Ravi on the bed together, his arms around her, both of them dead. And he'd actually taken an overdose of sleeping pills. And he said in a small note, he would go to the next world with her, so she wouldn't be frightened. And according to the coroner's report, Sangeeta had died of natural causes at around 2am. She'd simply stopped breathing in effect. And Ravi had clearly held her from the position they found him in. And he'd drunk from his little thermos flask, which turned out to be full of hot chocolate and sleeping pills. And so he joined her on that last great journey. Just like the willow tree and the river, never to be parted. Well, we hope you've recovered now you've listened to that story and put the tissues away. But don't worry, because the next story goes in a very, very different direction. And I guess if I was going to ask you a question now is, do you believe in ghosts? Because if you're not sure, listen to this next story. And it's called The Visitors. The Story Hive presents True Stories by Phil Ryan. The Visitors. One of my favourite plays is The Woman in Black. It's a very old-fashioned ghost story. And ever since I was young, I liked ghost stories, delighting in the creepy tales of haunted ancient ruins and phantom horsemen who rode the midnight trails. And as I grew older, I began to subscribe to the common theory that humans are basically energy, which, by the law of physics, is impossible to destroy. So if you can't destroy it, you can only convert it. But convert it to what? So when we die, what is left? The what is the nub of the argument. And some experts even believe it to be a kind of fading electrical residue that's absorbed into buildings and the ground, a kind of constant low-level radiation that fades over time. And of course, others believe it to be the stuff of spirits and ghosts. At one point, I even visited a few places listed in a book detailing the most haunted places in Britain. I was interested. I'm, I'm a writer after all. But I'm sad to say I didn't see anything. 
But I suppose you turn up the tour party covered in cameras and videos that clatter about shushing each other. It's not surprising any self-respecting spirit stays put. But despite the no-shows, like my friends on the ghost tour, we still all thought that the ancient castles and monasteries we read so much about were probably the only place you'd meet the ghosts of those long past. But I was wrong. In my late twenties, I'd written a children's book and I was feeling very good because amazingly for me, a small independent production company were thinking of making it into a television series. And Joe, the lady who ran the company, well, she was an amazing woman. She'd been in television for years, although primarily as a set designer, but now she was going to achieve her life's ambition and create her own television show. This one being her very first. So I signed a deal, I had a lovely literary agent she got for me, and the deal was very generous financially. And the months passed and I wrote and rewrote scripts and stories, and she set up finance meetings, and in general, the project seemed to be coming along very nicely. And one day, Joe asked me if I'd like to come to dinner at her house with my girlfriend, Fiona. And I said, I'd be delighted. And then I realised that throughout the entire year we'd worked together, I didn't even know where she lived. Normally, I just went to her office in Hampstead. But as it turned out, her house wasn't actually that far from us. It was about a 45-minute drive from where we lived. And so we duly arrived. And as we parked outside her house, to be honest, we were a bit disappointed. I mean, it wasn't the sort of place you really expect her to live. It's, we figured it would have been something a bit nicer, but it, it looked like a very drab old-fashioned bungalow, very nondescript, sort of place an old-age pensioner would live. Anyway, we walked up the path and we knocked, and then she opened the door. And that was when we got the surprise. I mean, it was fantastic. The interior was absolutely outrageous. Her years as a TV set designer, highly evident. The walls were soft brushed gold with painted ceilings and frescoes and mirrors everywhere. There were marble columns lining the corridor to the rooms and there wasn't a single detail that had been missed. In a way, it was like walking to a pharaoh's royal palace. And so she gave us a quick guided tour and we oohed and aahed our way around the place, much to her delight. Until finally, we all went into the kitchen and we sat down. I can tell you this, it might have been boring from the outside, but inside the whole place was like a rich treasure chest. And the best words I can think of to describe it fantasy fairy tale opulent. Anyway, we sat down and we had our dinner and she was talking candidly about the TV project and all she hoped from it and I was really excited. But then somehow the conversation moved along and she switched topic and then she started to speak about her private life. We learned that she lived with a partner but things were not going well. Him living abroad much of the year, travelling, that's what transpired. But this was the house they used together in London. And she said the arrangement suited them both. They'd bought it together, but it, she had done the decoration. But then, slightly to our discomfort, she then volunteered the information that he was sometimes violent towards her, but she'd learnt to cope with it. It was kind of one of those awkward moments. I mean, what do you say to something like that? So he stumbled around the subject a bit, and then it changed again. And now we continue to chatter on in that way that people do, now very carefully avoiding mentioning her partner and the aggressive behaviour. 
and the evening carried on really nicely. Finally, we left the large kitchen and now moved into her amazing lounge. The walls were hung with these golden silk tapestries. It was like sitting in a Roman temple. One whole long wall painted with this almost perfect mural depicting a sunlit garden and it spread out in all directions and it was all through the use of perspective it made the room look five times the size it actually was. The ceiling had this great purple canopy across it with velvet trimmings and tassels and then to complete the cosy but opulent picture there was this huge natural stone fireplace and it stood at the centre in the back wall and it was framed on either side by some sort of stained glass windows again beautifully lit. <laughs> Look, I know I'm not describing this very well because it wasn't tacky or over the top. It really, really wasn't. It was just gorgeous. Now, the big gas fire thing had those sort of fake wood blocks with kind of real flames, but it finished the room perfectly, sending flickering shadows dancing off the beautifully lit golden walls. And Sophie and I sat on a big central sofa, while Joe now lay propped up on some cushions on one elbow on a huge snowy white sheepskin rug that was set out before the fireplace. I mean, this really was a very comfortable place to be. And then Joe got up and went to make us some tea. Now, it was late in the year and the large fireplace was actually throwing out some serious heat now. And I commented to Fiona that I wish I wasn't wearing a polo neck jumper. And she said to me she wished she hadn't got her jumper on too because it was just way warm. And to be frank, we were both absolutely boiling. So much so I could feel sweat beginning to prickle under my arms and on my back. But the room did look beautiful and lovely with the fire licking through the fake wood. But I thought when Joe came back, I'd just ask her to turn the heating down a bit. Now virtually as soon as we'd sat down originally, Joe's big cat had taken up residence in my lap. And now Fee and I both tickled its tummy as it stretched and luxuriated in all our attention. This was a very happy and lovely friendly cat. And then Joe reappeared with the tea and the cakes. And as she handed the cups around, I felt the temperature slowly begin to drop. I thought, oh, well, she's obviously realised it's a bit warm. But it seemed a bit odd. Because now the fire was still burning brightly away. But it was definitely getting colder. And then, on my lap, the cat began to slowly dig its claws into my leg. And then suddenly it stiffened, and in a blur of fur and clattering movement, it skittered away out the door. Now, that seemed a bit odd to me, considering how comfy he'd been. But we all carried on talking. But now, the temperature was really getting cold. I even noticed Fee hunching her shoulders, and she tried to stay warm. But in front of us... The huge fire was still burning brightly, but I could feel a chill and my skin was covered in goosebumps. I mean, this was, this was, I can't explain. One minute we were boiling hot and now the room felt like ice. And poor Fiona had moved right next to me and pressed herself against me in an attempt to gain some heat. She looked at me, her eyes a bit wide, and I could see she was shivering. This was nuts. So I thought, I better say something. So I looked at Joe and I said, sorry, sorry, Joe, has, has the heating gone off? And then she simply looked at me then looked around the room and she smiled. But her expression was now rather odd looking, sort of vague and almost confused. 
all at the same time. And then she half whispered and she said, Oh no, it's all right. They're here. And her eyes now had a faraway look. They're here? I mean, that just sounded creepy. Who, who was it? Who was they? And I immediately felt Fiona's fingers tight around my arm. Oh, they're here, don't worry, she said. A few more seconds passed, and by now, the pair of us were absolutely freezing. I I'm not making this up. I'm pretty sure if I'd have breathed out, I'd have seen fog. But it was impossible. I could feel my face. It was completely frozen, and Fee's hand was like ice in mine. This, this wasn't right. And I could see, not three feet away, this huge fire blazing, but I couldn't feel any heat. But then suddenly Joe smiled again and said, Ah, they're gone. And as she spoke... To the second, the temperature flipped back to what it had been before. And I felt hot again, instantly. It was as if, you know, just a switch had been turned. But there was no heating system that could have achieved such a rapid rise and fall in temperature. That was impossible. And I could feel sweat now on my back. I mean, this was just weird. And Joe looked at us and smiled. Oh, sorry about that. I didn't know whether they'd come. They don't usually when I've got visitors. And now we were amazed. Who the hell were they? But Joe was acting as it was perfectly normal. And now Fee and I were both huddled together, as Joe explained. She told us that shortly after she moved in, she'd been in her bedroom one evening when she caught a sense of some other people or someone else being in the room. It was a presence, she said, but... It didn't frighten her. She said, actually, she'd felt very calm instead. It, it felt nice, almost protective. And then she'd seen them in the corner of her vision, just a shadowy outline, a, a couple, young, holding hands, dressed in old-fashioned clothes, too shapeless to fix a period to. Well, you can imagine, we were both sitting there, open-mouthed. This was now officially crazy. But Joe calmly continued, and she said, this house had been built on top of another house that had burnt down many, many, many years before. And she'd done some research in the parish records, and apparently a young newly married couple had originally lived in the house, but then it had burnt down shortly. But apart from that, there was no more information. And she wasn't sure of the completely exact date, maybe a hundred years or something, she said. But as for the couple, she'd seen them both and she knew they'd perished in the blaze. But then she added she didn't know why they'd come back or what they wanted. But all she knew for certain was the temperature just fell away whenever they entered a room. And she said she didn't always see them, but she always knew she could feel them, their presence. And it was the cold accompanying their arrival, hence her expression of, they're here. The one thing she made clear she strongly felt they didn't harbour any intention towards her. But then, then came my favourite part, because she talked about her partner, the violent one. Apparently they'd only been in the house around three months when he tried to physically restrain her in their bedroom and he pushed her hard against a wardrobe, holding her by a throat. When suddenly he'd been flung to the other side of the room by some invisible force and he'd been shocked and then he said something had pinned him to the wall, something he couldn't see, and it had completely terrified him. And he said he could feel something whenever he came into the place now. And as a result of all this, 
He'd begun to spend very little time there, which suited Joe down to the ground. She'd even recently offered to buy him out the property, and she said to us it was time she ended the relationship. And then she laughed, saying he was very unlikely to return to the house anyway. I mean, what do you say to someone who tells you something like that? I mean, you know, I'm a writer, I've got imagination, but this was unbelievable. But we had both clearly felt something. We had felt the cold. You couldn't really mistake that, that incredible temperature drop. But Joe talked about it as if it was a very perfectly normal thing. And to be frank, it was a bit unsettling. So anyway, we moved on, we had some more tea, and then the conversation eventually returned back to the TV project. But to be honest, I was still slightly in shock from what we both experienced, and of course her explanation. And we chatted a bit more, and then noting the time was late, we got our coats, said our goodnights, and drove home. Well, of course, there was only one topic of conversation in the car. The couple. I mean, we both felt the chilling cold. The slow drop in temperature had turned icy. And, of course, there was the behaviour of the cat. I pointed that one out. But what about the sudden return of the heat, she said. And, of course, Joe's very calm and rational explanation. I mean, this was a really smart business lady. She wasn't some unusually crazy person with weird views. So, we were a bit terrified briefly, bemused and amazed all at the same time. Now sadly, the project Joe and I were working on came to an end a few months later, as all too often happens in the entertainment business. It turning out that the financial backers had pulled out, which broke my heart, to be frank, because I knew that could have changed my life. And so tragically, the TV show never got made. And shortly after that, in the way of just the world, I lost contact with Joe, because our real connection had been the project. But you see, I got busy again, and so did she. And although we talked about getting together again to try it again, we never did. So I never got to see her or return to her house, although, to be honest, I'm not sure I would have wanted to. And no matter how I try to rationalise it now, what happened? Something very strange occurred. And whatever you believe, I know that I'd felt an extraordinary, extraordinary physical sensation that I just couldn't explain. I mean, faulty heating? I don't think so. Now, like us, maybe you think Joe's story was to comfort herself, that some benign supernatural force was protecting her. But that didn't explain the cold, not the cold we'd experienced. And plus there was that burning fire right in front of us doing nothing. I mean, how was that possible? And Joe, I mean, how could she know the temperature would change back to hot again, like in seconds? And yes, I know she was highly imaginative, but she did seem just too down to earth to make up something like that. So that just leaves me with the one thought of a long past young couple, a tragic end, bound to where they died forever, newly married, looking forward to a future together, a future that never happened. All that love, that energy, lost but not gone. Could a couple leave behind some kind of undissipated energy, a kind of protective presence? I mean, love is its purest form, and that's something you can't destroy. I know what I believe. Well, that's all 
today from the Story Hive podcast and I'd like to say thank you to the team and everybody out there in listener land. So if you like these collections, remember pop across to 3wsthestoryhive.co.uk and see what else we have to offer. Now, coming up very soon, of course, is the next episode. And up until then, I will leave you with the normal phrase that we use around the Story Hive, which is happy listening.